Sunday saw one of the bloodiest days of protest in Myanmar since Subu Ajampadu Luzunwe Thirty-five journalists arrested since the February 1st coup when the military seized power. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert and you're at the Listening Post where we dig into the coverage and look at how news is reported. Here are the stories we're examining this week. Myanmar, the opposition movement that refuses to go away and is providing news material the mainstream media either won't show or cannot show, complete with a soundtrack from the streets. Britain braces for a broadcast news formula born in America. And Russia's Alexei Navalny, locked up in prison, yet still managing to get the word out. It's been almost seven weeks now since Myanmar's military took power in a coup d'etat, deposing the democratically elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi. With the resistance refusing to give up and thousands on the streets day after day, the crackdown was inevitable and it has proven to be intense. Sunday, March 14th, saw 74 protesters killed, most of them reportedly gunned down by men in uniform. This regime is undeniably out to curb the news coverage. Five independent media outlets have had their licenses revoked, their right to broadcast or publish taken away. Dozens of reporters have been arrested. The rolling internet blackouts continue. Anyone with a camera, which means just about anyone with a phone, is considered a threat, and for good reason. Citizen journalists, the images they capture, the stories they tell, provide most of what we know about what is unfolding in Myanmar. And they're proving to be much better at this technology thing than the generals they're out to take down. Our starting point this week is Yangon. People are still risking their lives. They're going out on the street every single day to protest. And before they leave home, they put their blood types on their arm and the numbers and names of their parents in case they're killed. They're willing to risk their life. They're willing to give everything to fight this dictatorship. The coup d'etat playbook, if there is such a thing, reads like this. Take power from a democratically elected government. Tell the people you're acting in the country's long-term interest. Take over a few news outlets to control the narrative. Shut down the internet, if that's what it takes. Tolerate a demonstration or two. Then put on a show of strength and get on with governing. That's not how it went down in Myanmar. Right now, the military is miserably failing because over six weeks now, the military has not been able to consolidate any of their power. Protesters are not only uh, demonstrating during the day, but also at the night. Uh, despite the killings, the arrests, they continue to come back stronger and try to do everything they can to stop the military. Their main objective is to get these pictures, send it to the wall to show them what's going on. So uh, they might not be a professional journalist, but they are all doing what they can. Everyone who has a phone is a journalist now. To crush these widespread protests, the regime has arrested more than 2,000 people during nighttime raids into houses. It has also murdered more than 100 uh, and civilians. It's no longer look like 
it protests crackdown. It is virtually a war against its own people in the broad daylight. Having deposed Aung San Suu Kyi's government, the junta took more than a month before revoking the broadcast licenses of five news outlets, including Myanmar Now and the Democratic Voice of Burma. Those organizations have been doing frontline reporting under difficult conditions, covering the crackdown, feeling its effects. They also play an important editorial role with material provided by citizen journalists, layering those images with context and more information. Burmese reporters spent almost 50 years under military rule before elections in 2011 turned the country into a quasi-democracy. The lessons they learned under that junta have prepared them for this one, as have some new tricks of the trade they picked up during this pandemic. Luckily, thanks to this time COVID-19, our operation have been pretty much decentralized. So everybody like working from remote places, um, they can upload the stories wherever they are. And in fact, for us, I mean, we have been operating from exile for 20 years. We continue to operate fully. We are not allowed to distribute news via any kind of media. So this cover all kinds of publishing formats. But despite various challenges, we are still able to gather and publish news. But it will be extremely difficult for all of us if the regime caps off all the internet and mobile services permanently. The generals are clearly reluctant to do that, put an indefinite block on internet and mobile communications. The country's 3G phone networks have been completely shut down. Wi-Fi and broadband blocks come and go. The longest lasted three days. Now they come mostly at night when the police raids take place. Beyond that, the junta does not want to go. It realizes that since it last held power, the world has changed and it needs the internet as much as the news media do. If they shut down the uh, entire internet, then they won't be able to function either. The businesses won't be able to function. And actually, that will become uh, the favor for the protesters because the protesters today are trying to do everything to stop economy, to, to stop all these functions of the governments. So uh, now they have to find another way to only restrict certain uh, internet and Wi-Fi. If they shut down the internet uh, for the whole country, they will suffer and they will, you know, it will hurt their economy. So they are having an internal debate between wanting to shut down the in internet and wanting to stop the flow of information going out. And uh, on the other hand, they want this economy to survive so they have the mon money keep coming into their pockets. Myanmar's military leaders have a stake in the economy that is beyond political. It's personal. They're concerned about businesses in banking, mining, tobacco, and telecoms that the generals took control of the last time they held power and have never relinquished. Shutting down the internet affects their bottom lines too. 
So the junta has chosen to win hearts and minds with misinformation, internally and externally. It's hired an Israeli arms trader turned lobbyist to spin the story in the West by contending the former civilian government and the demonstrators are pro-China, somehow controlled by Beijing, which is like the pot calling the kettle black. At home, the generals are relying on state-owned media outlets like the global New Light of Myanmar to spread the idea that the protesters killed, many of them shot in the head, were murdered by their own kind. Given the mounting evidence collected and shared by demonstrators and Myanmar's geopolitical realities, both those narratives are getting the traction they deserve, which is almost none. The military side, they, they didn't really learn anything new. They've been using the same old technique and lying, you know, like, oh, demonstrator killing each other by themselves and then blaming on the, the soldiers. Nobody believed that. They see what happening in their neighborhoods. And then they watch it, the government TV channel. That story become a total opposite, and and it's it doesn't work. The regime wants to maintain good relationships with all all the Western partners. This is the reason why the regime has been trying to put forward this China narrative. But nobody is taking that seriously. The coup could not have been launched without the approval uh, from, from the Chinese political leadership. Burmese military relies a lot on China for getting weapons and, and also political cover at the United Nations, etc. Given a huge amount of uh, Chinese influence, no military leader in Myanmar can launch a coup without the approval or a green light from Beijing. And Beijing would not tolerate scenes like these on its own streets. Citizens contesting the narrative, defying an authoritarian government, and challenging the conventional wisdom, the coup d'etat playbook, which says that seven weeks into a military takeover, the resistance should have faded away by now. It has not. That is the story they are determined to tell, come what may. Turning to Russia now, having survived a poisoning widely believed to have been ordered from the very top, opposition figure Alexei Navalny is now in prison, sentenced to two and a half years. We did not know his precise location, however. Until this past week, Tarek Nov has been following this story. Tarek, where is Navalny and how did we come to learn of his whereabouts? Well, we now know that Navalny is being held in a notorious prison camp east of Moscow called Penal Colony Number no. 2, or IK2. And the source of that information is Navalny himself, his Instagram account now being run by members of his team. His post says he was surprised to learn it was possible to build a real concentration camp 100 kilometers from Moscow, but he says that overall he's doing well. Navalny's anti-corruption foundation, which has tormented Russian elites, including Vladimir Putin, uh, with its YouTube investigations, 
actually released a video about this prison camp not long ago. In it, we get reports about inmates being beaten up by staff. Navalny says himself that he hasn't seen any violence yet, any evidence of violence, but he does make reference to George Orwell's 1984 and what he calls education through dehumanization. Navalny's part politician, part journalist. When he was arrested in January, that was a huge story in Russia. Give us an idea of how many reporters have paid the price for covering that story. So according to the legal organization OVD Info, in the four weeks after Navalny returned to Moscow, 11,000 people were arrested in 125 cities across Russia. That included more than 150 journalists some reporters and activists were charged, some were jailed, simply for expressing an opinion on social media. Staying with Russia and Novaya Gazeta, Moscow newspaper, well known for being critical of the Kremlin. What's this about reports of a chemical attack on its offices? Well, there's a video of this incident taking place, Richard. A man in a courier's uniform walks up to Novaya Gazeta's office with his bike, then sprayed some kind of gas from the back wheel. The staff said it left a pungent chemical smell. The emergency services turn up, reportedly find nothing dangerous, no harmful substances. But this incident just adds to a long list of intimidation and violence faced by staff at the newspaper for their investigative work. Back in 2006, reporter Anna Politkovskaya was gunned down in her apartment block in Moscow. And in 2018, a funeral wreath and a severed goat's head were left outside the entrances to the newspaper with a note that read to the chief editor of Novaya Gazeta. Message sent. Thanks, Tara. After the US presidential election, Britons were among those shocked by what they saw coming out of Washington. The allegations that the vote was somehow stolen, the blizzard of misinformation, conspiracy theories, the riot on Capitol Hill, with right-wing news channels, Fox and its ilk, at the heart of it. Compared to the American broadcast landscape, Britain's airwaves are far less opinionated. They're more impartial. The broadcast regulator, Ofcom, has seen to that, but it's about to change. Ofcom has recently approved two new news providers. Both will lean to the political right. One is backed by Rupert Murdoch, who owns Fox News. The other will be chaired by one of his former acolytes. So why now, given that Ofcom's regulations haven't actually changed, they're just being interpreted differently? Well, the skeptical view is that Boris Johnson's conservative government wants to tilt news coverage its way, Fox News style, with a British accent. The listening posts flow Phillips now on two newcomers looking to disrupt broadcast journalism in Great Britain. I believe the direction of news debate in Britain is increasingly woke and out of touch with the majority of its people. Some journalists and commentators seem too confident that their liberal left assumptions must surely be shared by every sensible person in the land. But many of those same sensible people are fed up. They feel left out and unheard. GB News is aimed squarely at those people. Those are the words penned last month for a right-wing tabloid newspaper by a veteran of the British Airwaves, Andrew Neil. Until recently, Neil was one of the BBC's most prominent broadcast journalists. Now he has a new job, 
chairman and host of the soon-to-be-launched GB News. They're out to disrupt this traditional way of doing television news in Britain. I've been at my happiest as a disruptor, as an insurgent, as doing things that will shake things up. They're going to probably put forward an opening position and then under the rules they should really have a variety of views expressed within the programme. Now is that going to be uh, other journalists, is it going to be politicians, we don't know, but it's quite clear from what Andrew Neil has said about GB News that there is an important political element to it. Despite his long association with the public broadcaster, Andrew Neil has a right-wing resume. Before the BBC, he was a Murdoch man, first as editor of the Sunday Times, then as founding chairman of Sky TV. Neil isn't the only Rupert Murdoch protégé at GB News. Its CEO is a former boss of Sky News Australia, and one of the channel's presenters is Dan Wooten, once executive editor at Murdoch's Sun newspaper and a drive-time presenter on his talk radio station. But GB News doesn't actually have anything to do with Rupert Murdoch himself. And rather than being outdone by those protégés, Murdoch plans to compete with them. He's launching something similar from his News UK stable, a streaming service, evenings only. It is being set up obviously by Rupert Murdoch, who created Fox TV in the United States. Its chief executive is David Rose, who is a former Fox vice president. But I think it's going to be less political than GB News. Now, of GB News, we know that it's much newsier, I think, much racier. It's going to thrive on opinion, which is a new departure for British television. I mean, not to sound like a crotchety old Marxist, but you can tell a lot about an organisation by who's funding them. So, so far, GB News has managed to attract about £60 million in investment. And a significant portion of that money has come from two sources. One is the Legatum uh, Fund, and it of course also fund a right-wing think tank called the Legatum Institute. Another source of funding is hedge fund manager Sir Paul Marshall, and he's someone who's also funded the Brexit campaign. So if you're thinking about where GB News sits in relation to the political establishment, it represents quite a break, not just from social democratic or centre-left values, but also centre-right values. The people behind these channels can see there's a gap in the market. Uh, they believe that there is an appetite for news which is more populist, more right-wing, if you like. And this is a very important moment because it's opening up the broadcasting field to new entrants who are, by all accounts, going to be offering something rather different to a British audience than they've been accustomed to. That's certainly true when it comes to the existing television news providers. All must follow the rules on impartiality set by Ofcom, the regulator, as well as their own self-imposed guidelines on political balance. I never signed up to save But the then there's radio. Nobody's ever asked me if I want to save the planet, and quite frankly, I don't. Commercial stations like LBC or Murdoch's Talk Radio have recently demonstrated just how far the regulatory envelope can be pushed. It's a development that isn't lost on regulators from years gone by. I think the key moment was when at least one radio station in the UK looked at the rules and said, actually, these rules don't actually say what we all think they say. 
they do allow, in some circumstances, for presenters and reporters to offer their opinions. Once they are no longer mandatory, the wearing of masks to me will be the giveaway of people who I want to know and people I don't want to know. Those of us who follow things went back to the rules and said, yes, you can have comment on one important condition, that other viewpoints are heard. They can be one of two ways. Either you have a programme which points one way. I don't want foreign criminals in this country. What's wrong with trying to prevent them from coming in? And that's followed at some point by a programme that points the opposite direction. Here is Boris Johnson courting racist votes by pretending he was going to be, quote, tougher on immigration. Or within the programme, whatever the presenter may say, other voices can be heard. One of the bosses of Ofcom recently said that Ofcom had never outlawed the idea of broadcasters having a political viewpoint. I think that Ofcom knows that change is coming. It knows that there is genuine dissatisfaction on the right of British politics with the broadcasting landscape as it currently is. And it knows that the government is intent upon rebalancing that broadcasting landscape. In their attempts to drag the country's broadcasters to the right, British Conservatives have long been casting an envious eye across the Atlantic. Dominic Cummings, until recently the Prime Minister's chief advisor, was doing that as far back as 2004. Blogging about, quote, undermining the credibility of the BBC and creating a Fox News equivalent to shift the centre of gravity. GB News and News UK are coming. But the writers opened up yet another front advancing that agenda. Ofcom is about to get a new chair. It's a political appointment and the leading contender is a man every bit as synonymous with the UK's right-wing tabloids as Rupert Murdoch, editor-in-chief of the Daily Mail group, Paul Dacre. Were Paul Dacre to be appointed as head of Ofcom? That would be like appointing Hannibal Lecter to chair the Vegetarian Society. These are completely incompatible values and interests. How can you put this man, who fundamentally doesn't really think the BBC should exist, who oversaw the pumping out of misinformation as editor of the Daily Mail, how can you put him in charge of a broadcast regulator? Throw in the fact that Dacre doesn't much like regulations. The press is already on the very cusp of being over-regulated. And that makes him the perfect, or wholly imperfect, candidate for the job, depending on your politics. Street News, The Opinion America Trusts. But British Conservatives would be wise to remember that it was deregulation of the American broadcast sector, the repeal of a policy called the Fairness Doctrine, that paved the way for the hyper-partisan journalism Americans are subjected to today, what some call the foxification of the US airwaves. We are seeing a gradual erosion of the sort of standards of impartiality and neutrality that we have enjoyed in this country. To the benefit of all, we are seeing the beginning of a concerted push to change the centre of gravity of the British broadcast media. As that centre of gravity moves to the right, there will be more outspoken views expressed on the left. Polarisation is a, it's a bit of a one-way valve. It's very hard to pull back from it. The fears about foxification are hugely overdone because the regulations remain in place. These new broadcasters are still going to be under the control of Ofcom. Even if Paul Dacre does get the job, change will be gradual, evolutionary, not revolutionary, hopefully 
one of the consequences of having new entrants on the scene is that we're going to get a healthier balance in the national political conversation. It's long overdue. It seems that wait is over. GB News is pioneering a new way in British news and debate. I believe it will be a channel you want to watch, but only you can be the true judge of that. GB News is yet to broadcast a single second on air, but Andrew Neil can definitely count on a few people tuning in. The regulators. Back to me and Mar now, and the creative ways that activists there have been blending art, poetry, and music into their pro-democracy demonstrations. The Burmese have a rich history of protest songs. Many of the anthems in the streets today echo the uprising of 1988. That was a pro-democracy student movement, also opposed to military rule, that ultimately failed, landing many of its participants in prison for decades. One song being played across the country these days is Kaba Matebu, which translates to We Shall Not Surrender Till the End of the World. It's an adaptation. Fans of the American band Kansas and their 1977 song Dust in the Wind will recognize the melody. We'll see you next time here at the Listening Post. Someday.